Hello, welcome to the Eagle Tales podcast, a podcast from the Central High School Foundation keeping you connected to the nest through storytelling and original interviews. I'm your host, Josh Busey. Before we get started, though, a little bit about the foundation. We were established in 1996 to support present and future Central students. And today we are even more committed to preserving the values of a Central High School education. The foundation supports the school through many activities, like building relationships with alumni, fundraising, student scholarships, teacher classroom grants, and so much more. We are proud of the accomplishments that our students, staff, and 35,000 alumni achieve every day. Your patronage not only supports Central, but also strengthens Eagle Nation. Be sure to visit our website to learn more, chsfomaha.org. It is my honor to introduce our guest for episode nine of Eagle Tales, Henry Cordes, who is in 1981 alumnus of Central and a 2017 Hall of Fame honoree will be joining me shortly. Over nearly four decades with the Omaha World Herald, Cordes has been recognized as one of Nebraska's most influential journalists. He joined the paper's sports department months after graduating from Central in 1981. He went on to serve six years as State House Bureau Chief and has since specialized in public policy, special projects, and investigations. He is the only five-time winner of UNL Sorensen Ward, awarded each year to recognize Nebraska's most distinguished work of journalism. His investigative work has shined light on poverty in North Omaha, revealed a finance scandal that forced the resignation of the chancellor of his college alma mater, and uncovered excessive executive pay at Goodwill. He served as president on the Omaha Press Club and has authored three books, two on Nebraska football history and one on Omaha serial killer. His proudest accomplishment, though, is fathering two central grads, daughters Thelma and Lucy. Henry, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hey, Josh. Good to be here. As our loyal listeners know, I always like to start out every episode of Eagle Tales by giving our guests a moment to introduce themselves. So Henry, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself that we didn't cover in the opening bio. Okay. Well, you know, I'm probably sort of an Omaha native. My father had been born in Omaha. I actually spent my early years out on the East Coast where my mom was from. But we moved to Omaha when I was in the seventh grade in 1976. And uh, I attended uh, Norris Middle School and ended up at Central, you know, which kind of started me onto the track to journalism, actually, and, and where I am today. As mentioned, been at the World Herald for 40 years. It's been a huge part of my life. And I still love what I do. I still think being a journalist is the greatest job on the planet. I love the fact that I constantly get to learn new things and to dive into areas that I, I'm interested in. I love the fact I get to meet and interview interesting people and write their stories. And uh, I love the fact that you can make a difference. You know, you, as a journalist, you can shine a light on things that need to be exposed and, and you can make a difference for people. And I, I just love that about my job. You graduated from Central in 1981. What do you remember about your time as a Central Eagle? Such an incredible place. I mean, I still remember the first time that I actually saw Central. My father, he had he had grown up in Omaha, but he had actually gone to prep. But I wish I would asked him this question. I don't think I ever did. But he loved Central High School. And uh, maybe he'd always wanted to go to Central. I don't know. But I, remember, I have a distinct memory of a child of us driving by Omaha during a visit to Omaha, uh, seeing my grandparents and him pointing up to the school up on a hill downtown and saying that that's where you guys are going to go to high school. We didn't even live in Omaha at the wow. time. So he apparently had always planned to come back to his hometown. And I just, I just remember looking up at the Citadel up on the hill and, and this just this amazing building, you know, that looked like something out of Greece. And so that was the first time I saw Central and, and I did matriculate there after my junior high years. And, but of course, you know, as amazing as that building is, and, and I just love, the history of those those creaky halls, and uh, you very quickly learn that what makes Central so special is the people, the the students. I mean, I attended school with the the most diverse group of fun, smart, creative, committed, worky group of of classmates that you could possibly imagine, and it was such 
an enriching experience to be around all those people. I went to school with girls who were Exarban princesses, and I I went to school with people who came from almost nothing. And you know, I I got shaken down for lunch money, and you know that was it was all part of my you know experience, you know, real life experience that I that I had at Central, and I just loved the people there, and then of course the faculty. I mean the just such an incredible group of teachers that that uh, really helped shape my life and put me on the course to where I where I ended up in life. We'll touch on this a little bit later. What kind of activities were you involved with at Central? Uh, you know, activities are critical. I mean, to school life, and I was in the band all three years, and it was served as president of the band. I had started off as a trumpet player, but I had braces at the time. <laughs> I got braces when I was in high school and I found that it made it really difficult for me to play because that little mouthpiece and it was almost painful. And the band director, Mr. Farrell, very wisely switched me to baritone my junior year. And I almost immediately really transformed me as a musician. I remember at the end of the marching band season, because we'd been out in the field and he couldn't really tell who was playing what because we're all out marching around. But then at the end of the marching band season, we had tryouts so we could be seated for, you know, a concert band, which for the rest of the year. And I did my tryout and Mr. Farrell said, Henry, I knew somebody was playing back there, but I didn't know it was you. (laughs) (laughs) So band was, was a big thing for me and sports. I, I was a swimmer in middle school and I continued that at Central. Mr. Heck was my coach, Steve Heck, who's a central grad, by he the is, way, yeah. and a great guy. And then I, I, I wish I had run cross country from the beginning, but my junior year, I started running cross country. David James, an incredible mentor to me. And then, of course, my senior year, I got involved in journalism. You know, Mr. Garrity, Ed, you know, he, he basically set me on my life's course. I mean, there's kind of a funny story about how, how I even came to be working at the register. Yeah, that's. Leads me right into my next question here. Talk a little bit about some of your favorite teachers or people who had a, a large impact on your life. Yeah, all those coaches I mentioned cer- certainly did, but I, I got the opportunity to learn from absolutely some of the central legends. My English teachers, Mrs. Ottenreath as a sophomore, Mrs. Bernstein as a junior, just amazing. You know, Dan Daly, I mean, two of those are central hall of famers. Some legends. Themselves, yeah. Absolute legends. Mr. Blanky, his senior history class was life-changing for me. I mean, it really uh, gave me a love of history that is still with me today. In fact, one of the cool things about being a journalist is you get to write the first draft of history. Some of my favorite stories are the ones where I've had a chance to delve into history. And and that was a love that I actually got in Jack Blanky's class. And of course, Mr. Garrity, it is not at all a lie to say that he is the reason I'm I'm a journalist today. And kind of here's how that, that came about. I actually had not intended to do journalism at Central. I loved to write. I always loved to write. In fact, I even did a neighborhood newspaper with Eric Olson, who was another Central graduate who went on to a career in journalism. When we were kids, we, we put out a little neighborhood newspaper talking about our wiffle Talk ball. Talk of the town. The wiffle ball exploits and, and things. And but I wasn't planning to do that at Central. I was kind of a, I was a good student. I was kind of ranked high in my class. And so like a lot of kids at Central, my senior year, I was planning to load up on AP courses and try to get my GPA as high as possible. And I got off that track and it was because of Mr. Garrity. What, what happened was junior year back then to do the register, you had to be a senior underclassmen were not allowed to do it. And to do it, you also had to take a junior level class called Introduction to Journalism that Mr. Garrity taught. It was just an elective. And I ended up in that class, not because I was so much interested in journalism, but because three of my best friends were in the class too. (laughs) One of them was Brian Keenan, the son of another central legend, John Keenan, who I never had as a teacher, but certainly got to know very well because of Brian. So three of my best friends were in this class and it was just like, I don't think Mr. Garrity realized when he, that when we signed up for this class, because when the seating chart came out, all four of us were just like sitting right together, right in his blind spot. So it was, it was kind of the luck of the draw. And um, 
I did like the class. I thought it was really fun. But one day we were in that class and at the start, you know, the, the bell had had not yet rung. And, and so we were just kind of sitting, waiting for class to start. And and it was the, the time for kids to decide whether they were going to work for the register or not. And he he asked me, hey, are you going to try to work for the register next year? And I told him no. I'd, I'd looked at it and I said, well, the register meets the same time as AP physics and I'm planning to take AP physics. So um, I, no, I won't be doing that. Well, it was just this conversation between friends, but apparently someone else was listening too, because when I got home from swimming practice that night, my mom said, Henry, uh, I just got a phone call from your journalism teacher and he's very concerned that you are not planning to work for the register next year because um, he thinks you have some really talent for this and he thinks you'd be missing out on a good experience. And I just remember thinking at the time, okay, well, I guess I'm going to work for the register next year because, you know, when you're a kid, to have somebody affirm that you have a talent for something, I mean, and, which I didn't even know. Sure. I mean, yeah. To have someone come out and say, you know, they think you have a talent for something was just very affirming to me and gave me a lot of confidence that, you know, well, empowering. I, it, was, it was absolutely empowering. And that's something that I would, I would say about my experience with the school paper. In fact, I did. I, I signed up for Register. I ended up being the sports editor and I absolutely loved the experience. And, and part of it was the fact that it was so empowering. You know, Mr. Garrity was a great teacher. He gave us a lot of latitude. I mean, we had the ability to pretty much write about what we wanted. He didn't tell us what to do. He would give us advice. But we we were the ones who decided what went into that paper. And we all had this commitment that we were going to make this this best damn little newspaper we could. And, and absolutely, you know, there was a lot of empowerment that came from that. So although he was there to give us advice, he also gave us just enough room to fall on our faces, you know, which is unfortunately journalism is, is, is one of the ways that you, you learn the ropes. You make mistakes and and your your mistake gets uh, printed and for everyone <laughs> to see, you know, unlike other people when they make errors, you know, when, when we when we make a mistake, which everyone does. I mean, let's face it, you know, they are out there for everyone to see. In fact, one one of the. I'll never forget that, you know, after each time uh, we came out with the newspaper, uh, we would have a postmortem where we would sit down and and discuss, uh, you know, what had been in the newspaper and what could we have done better. And Mr. Carity pointed out to me that I had spelled Tom Osborne's name incorrectly. <laughs> Just like, which is probably the, 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 in the state of Nebraska, what bigger sin could there have been? And it's very ironic because I later went on to life to in life to write a uh, book about uh, Tom Osborne. So, and you can bet that from my experience, I I didn't misspell his Every name. Every time you see time. his name, you probably double check now <laughs> from now on, right? Exactly. Now we can go back and look online and see all of our you know registers. You know the uh, and we can go and look them up. And I'm actually embarrassed when I go and I look at some of the stuff that I that I wrote back then, because I, as I think I was like, I would not do it that way today. If I were, if, if I were to go back and uh, I think a lot of what I wrote were like game stories about, you know, the latest football game, you know, disregarding the fact that, you know, we weren't a daily newspaper. And so a lot of these articles were coming out days, if not weeks after, you know, the game was played. And, and I, I totally would have changed my approach. But one of the things that I did every edition was write a sports column. And that was, I had this great ability to, you know, express myself and, and, and write about topics that were of interest to me. And one of the cool stories that I did was that my senior year at Central was the first year that Central made the state football playoffs. We had this great team. We had a running back named Terry Evans, who's in my class, who's incredible. And we had these uh, Larry Station, everybody knows, and Pernell Gatson they were juniors and just these incredible talents uh, who came on to, you know, really came into their own that year. And we made the state playoffs for the first, it was kind of what first established central as kind of a football school. And so we were very proud of that. This was the fall of 1980. Well, we were writing about the fact that the central football team had had the best record since 1960. 
which had been the undefeated team that Gale Sayers played for that year. And so I thought, I want to find out about that 1960 team. And I actually had the opportunity in delving into that to write, to interview Gale Sayers and talk to Gale Sayers, who was just this incredible gentleman. What an incredible legacy for Central to, to have a man like that associated with our school. And he was just the nicest man. I, I don't remember much about the interview. I don't remember. A little starstruck. I, absolutely. 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 I just remember how how patient and generous he was with his time at the time he was working as an athletic director in the state of, at a, I think, Southern Illinois University, but a, a school in Illinois. And I got, I interviewed some of the other, other players on that team. And by the time I finished my register experience, I not only knew I loved journalism, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I always feel for people who, you know, go to college and kind of struggle with what they want to do. I always feel so lucky because from really from that moment on in my senior year, I knew exactly what I, what I wanted to do. After graduating from Central, you went to the University of Nebraska at Omaha. What did you learn during those college years? Were there things that you picked up that kind of shaped your, your journalism career moving forward? Oh, absolutely. Uh, although I, I must say a lot of the learning I did was not at UNO. It wasn't that I didn't have great professors and, and mentors there too. It's because I, I actually started working at the World Herald just weeks into my freshman year at UNO. There's actually a central connection to that as well. The head of the journalism department at UNO was Mr. Frankie and his daughter, Kara, was a classmate. She was a year behind me, but we knew each other. And, and so he was familiar with me. And I ended up at UNO in part because Mr. Frankie had told me if you come to UNO, I'm, I'm pretty sure there'll be a chance that you'll get to be able to work for the World Herald uh, during your time of school. Well, I didn't have any idea it was going to be <laughs> weeks into my freshman year, and I'm not sure he knew that either. But what happened was the World Herald at the time used a lot of college students to work. They called it crush, the, the high school crush, which was on Friday and Saturday nights when football games and, and basketball games in particular were being played. I should say the boys basketball games because, you know, there wasn't much coverage for the girls in those days. And uh, it gets to a subject I've been writing about recently was title nine, but um, we'll get to yeah. that. <laughs> and so when they came to him and asked Mr. Frankie and asked him, uh, you know, are there some students you would recommend who, who might be able to do this for us? He must have given them my name. So I was called into the World Herald to interview with a guy named Bob Tucker. And it took a while. I think he was even a little surprised to learn that I was a fresh out of high school <laughs> freshman. And and he didn't call me up right away. But eventually that fall, he uh, as basketball season was started, I was hired at the World Herald to work crush night, which was basically manning the phones when these stringers would call in with the results of, of a high school sporting event. And, and you would just take down the box score who scored how many points. And then you would, uh, and then you would ask them about the game and then you might write a two little pair, you know, we still run those things, just these two little paragraphs about each game. So that was kind of my foot in the door. And I started doing that and boy, within, by the end of that, my freshman year, I was pretty much working almost full time as a copy editor in the sports department of the World Herald. When when they they were World Herald at the time was if they recognized that someone had some talent, they would exploit the hell out of you because <laughs> we were making pretty much minimum wage. Yeah. But you know, I was I I was amazed that they paid me at all because I just thought it was so exciting to be working in an actual newsroom. And so I got to work in the World Herald Sports Department during my entire four years of college. So when I say a lot of the learning was not at UNO, it was it was because I was working 40 hours a week at the World Herald. And I do not recommend to anybody to do this, <laughs> to work full time, to have a full time job and also be a full time college student, which I had to be because all my scholarships required me to be a full time student. And then on the side, I even worked for the, the UNO Gateway too. And in fact, one semester, I was the sports editor of the Gateway and worked at the World Herald. So I worked five nights a week at the World Herald, two nights a week at the Gateway, 
there aren't any other nights in the week, Josh. I mean, I was <laughs> like, so, I mean, and I just, I about died by the end of that semester. And I went to my friends at the gateway and I said, you know, I, I like you guys and you're my friends and I, re- but I cannot be an editor at the gateway ever again. I said, I will write you a story every week. Assign me a story. I will write a story, but I can, I, I mean, I have to eat, <laughs> I have to sleep. I, and, uh, but you know, I had my foot in the door. So by the end of my senior year uh, at UNO, I was pretty sure I was going to be hired by the World Herald. In fact, I was just expecting any day to be called in to be offered a job in the sports department. And that day came uh, about a month before I graduated. And I went into the managing editor's office. It was Bob Pierman and shocked me. He said, Henry, I want to make you a police reporter. And I was just stunned. And he was kind of upset, actually, that I wasn't like, super thrilled and excited that he was offering me this job as a police reporter because I just saw myself as a sports guy. And, um, and I just imagined myself being uh, writing about sports. And so I was a little shocked by this and it took me a, a while to even accept this. But again, it was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. Uh, what he did. And I'm so glad that he recognized that. I mean, the word he used was, Henry, we need to get you out of the fun and games department and get you writing real news. And because he he had seen, and what happened was I had written a story. There was a tragic, there had been a tragedy in Council Bluffs where uh, some athletes from uh, one of the Council Bluffs schools had been killed. It was treated as a sports story. And I was the one who ended up writing that story. And he basically decided this guy's not a sports writer. He's a news writer. And it was getting out of sports. And I still love sports. I admit when I pick up the paper, I sports section is still the, I pull out the sports section. That's the first one I read. I toss the rest of the paper aside. It's still the first section I read every day, but getting out of sports just opened up the world to me. I started off covering cops, but within nine months, they sent me to Lincoln to cover the legislature. And all of a sudden I'm writing about policy. I mean, the legislature deals with every issue on the planet. All of a sudden I'm writing about agriculture and politics and electrical rates and education, tax policy. I mean, you name it. I mean, the legislature deals with it. And it, an entirely different group of people oh, as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And I, and no one was ever more unprepared to cover the Nebraska legislature <laughs> than, than I was after having worked as a, as a reluctant police reporter for nine months. Um, and then all of a sudden being thrown into that environment. I didn't even know how many state senators there were. I didn't even know there was a thing, a unicameral that, <laughs> that Nebraska was like the only one house uh, legislature. And I didn't know that. I don't know why I didn't learn that at central. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I, I, I don't know. And I remember my first day down there and I had to go cover a legislative hearing and that here's a central connection. I chose a hearing where a state senator named Var Johnson had a bill that was up for, up for consideration. And I chose that one in particular because I knew Vard's son, Sam, was a classmate of mine. And Central Sam's a, a Central High Hall of Famer. He was, um, he's a comedy writer. So I basically went to Vard because I knew that I could go to Vard afterward and ask him any stupid dumb question I needed to ask and, and not be afraid because uh more than a little intimidating going into something like that. Exactly, exactly. And I totally learned uh, you know, from the ground up because I came in knowing nothing. But it but it really was this the the start of becoming to me a real journalist because once the the world was opened up to me, you know, what I was writing about was public policy. And I I suppose that's more than anything. What I write about today, I write about our problems and I write about efforts to solve our problems and, and try to shine a light on our problems. And, and covering the legislature is kind of what set me on my course for, you know, kind of what I've spent the better part of my career covering for the World Herald. And, and that's really one of the things that's really also that experience in the legislature. I don't know that I would have considered myself a Nebraskan before those years, you know, even though I'd gone to high school in Nebraska and I'd spent my high school years in Omaha, 
those years in Lincoln kind of made me realize I was a Nebraskan. I kind of fell in love with Nebraska. It got in the legislature. You meet people from all across the state and from all walks of life. And they're all very different. And, you know, there's, there was a, a lot of different opinions, a lot of very conservative people from rural areas and a lot of very liberal people from Omaha. And they all have to come together and work together. And they're not always going to agree. And you're not always going to agree with them. But you, you find that, that deep down, a lot of, they're all, regardless of what they uh, feel, they're, they're all good people and good people at heart. And I just kind of, I fell in love with Nebraska in those years. And I think that's really what's kind of, kept me rooted here in the state because when I was covering a, a public policy, I could, yeah, I could go do that in Chicago or New York. And I don't care about Chicago's problems or New York's problems. I really care about Nebraska's problems and what we could do to make life better here in Nebraska. I, that's one thing I'm still really committed to doing in my job. Some of the articles that you've written have been long form or, you know, they span multiple print editions. For those longer stories, maybe talk to us a little bit about the preparation and timeline, something like that takes for that to even happen. Well, they're all very different. Yeah, there have been many multi-part things. Some of them are narratives, and I love doing those, um, you know, kind of telling a, a story about what happened through a, a narrative that is so in-depth that it almost becomes like a, a novel, you know, and, and it takes several parts to put that together. And then there are multi-part investigative series where we dive deep into a topic. Uh, the goodwill thing that you had mentioned was a, was a great example of that. Another reporter and I were tipped off about how essentially the people who were running the goodwill in Omaha were basically looting the place. They were spending every dollar that came in pretty much on their own to line their own pockets and weren't doing anything, spending any of the money to actually do good things, which is what the, uh, a nonprofit exists for. And, and it, that we spent months digging into that. And I'm sure the research alone oh, took yeah, an extended period of time. Absolutely. In, in the case of the Goodwill story, I basically decided to understand what was going on at Goodwill Omaha. I needed to understand every Goodwill in the country. And so I, Every nonprofit in lieu of filing a tax return has to file a form called uh, a 990 with the federal government. And these are public documents. Well, I crest requested the 990s for every goodwill in the country. And in, and in a lot of cases, even went back in, in the case of the Omaha Goodwill, went back as far as I could. I think I went back 15 years to, to try to get a handle on, on what was happening there. And what I discovered was that, yeah, unfortunately, the, what was happening in Omaha was not completely unique. There were other goodwills I found that appeared to be being looted by uh, the people who ran them. That what I discovered was the problem with the goodwill and the goodwill model was a lot of charities, you ask for money and you give you money and then you uh, you spend it to do good things. I mean, that's what uh, that's what the Central High Foundation is about. Well, Goodwill, the model is different. They ask you to donate stuff and it's stuff you don't want anyway. It's stuff you don't even value. You just, you're happy to get rid of it. And they take this stuff and then they sell it to generate money. And they're supposed to use that money for good things. Well, the people who are donating the stuff, they're not looking to see whether that, how is my money being spent? And so the people at this Omaha Goodwill, and I think it's some of the other Goodwills, they came to realize, hey, this is free money. No one is noticing how we're spending it. And, and what I remember the epiphany of when I, I had that day as I was looking at what was going on here. It's like, that's why this is happening. And it took a lot of weeks of, of diving into the numbers and looking at how Goodwills ran for me to have that epiphany. And, you know, credit to the World Herald for giving me and this other reporter, we, we reported that story for, I think, close to six months before it, before it ended in the paper. And, and, and that's why it ended up being kind of a multi-part series. Now, other series uh, I've done, I've done narratives, long-form narratives, and those are just fun to do. I mean, that's kind of where you're, like one was on Scott Frost and the hiring of Scott Frost, which at the time everyone was excited about, right? <laughs> More than excited. <laughs> 
And I remember I told my editor, I want to do a narrative on how Scott Frost ended up being hired at Nebraska. I think there would be a, a if we really dove into that, because there was a lot of secrecy that involved behind these things. And I just knew, I just said, I know, I think there'd be a, a hell of a story there. And I remember my editor said, well, okay, we'll give you the time to do this. Cause you know, a reporter's time is valuable. And, and he said, we'll give you the time to do this. Uh, just, I don't want you just repeating a bunch of stuff that we've already reported. And then when I got into it, it was like, oh my God, the, and Bill Moose, the athletic director, he totally confided in me about, I had a four hour interview with him about what was going on behind the scenes. It was just this incredible story. And, it, and I thought it would be like a single story. And then it was like, yeah, it's a two part series. That's a three part series. And then, and then after my editor started reading some of the parts are like, you know, if you want to make this a five part series, well, it ended up being a seven part series because that, that I had so much detail about all the machinations that were going on uh, behind the scenes to make this happen. And, and, and how true, how Scott in the end was truly torn between going back to his home state and his alma mater to coach and these players at, at Central Florida that he had come to grown very close with. And Tom Osborne was one of the ones who really helped me understand that because Scott just called Tom agonized over what to do. And Tom kind of talked him off the edge, <laughs> off the ledge. And Tom and I have had a good relationship for a long time. I never told him I misspelled his name in high school, but uh, I got to know Tom actually very well in the Lawrence Phillips years. You know, there were here, you have the star running back on the team who assaulted his girlfriend, caused it, you know, when the team was number one in the country and, and the defending national champs and favored to win again. So it's just this huge story. And somebody had to become the Lawrence Phillips reporter. And because of my background in sports, and because our sports guys didn't want to have anything to do with the, those aspects of the story, they just wanted to write about the score. I was assigned to be the Lawrence Phillips reporter and I got very deeply involved in that story. And I would go down to Lincoln to interview Tom Osborne about various aspects of that. I would show up at the press conference and he did not like it when I <laughs> went down there because it was, wasn't a subject he was necessarily interested in talking about. Um, and the person who was the head of the football PR didn't, they started having me kind of interview him on the side instead of um, at, at, in front of everybody. And she would always say, you can have five minutes, you know, or 10 minutes, you know, and, and, but Tom was very gracious with his time because Tom, he felt he would, what he was doing was right. He, you know, he's trying to save this kid. And so he, whenever she would say 10 minutes, I remember one time she said 10 minutes and Tom and I talked for an hour and a half. And because he was, convinced he was right. And he wanted Tom as a stubborn man and he wanted to have his say. And because of my involvement with Lawrence Phillips, I ended up getting to make the bowl trip that year where they went down to Phoenix and, and won the second uh, straight national championship. And I remember running into Tom in the hotel we were all staying at and uh, he saw I was down there and he just came up to me and just greeted me like we were old friends. And I could tell at that point. And we've talked about it since. I mean, he said, you know, I didn't always like the stories you were writing, but I always thought you were fair. And so Tom and I kind of developed this pretty good relationship. And it ultimately led to me many years later, actually writing a book about Tom Osborne. And it all started kind of with, you know, the whole Lawrence Phillips incident. Another multi-part series I, I did was, that was kind of one of the more wrenching ones I've ever done. And it was about what happened at Von Mar in, in 2007. And I was just in Von Mar recently. And I'll tell you, I cannot walk into that store. I walk into that store and I immediately, I know everything that happened in the store that day, basically second by second. And so I can't go up on the third floor without kind of looking at the place where I know, you know, someone was killed and I can't, I can't walk on to the, by the second floor escalator without knowing that that's where Gary Sharp died. That was the most probably difficult story I've ever covered for the world. Herald was what happened at Von Mar. I remember I was, I was in the office that day and I saw a police reporter just sprint for the door. And I was like, what, what's going on here? I mean, she w went in an all out sprint. And what we learned that there was, 
apparently a shooting. It was an active shooting going on at the Von Mar. And I just walked over to the police scanner and I was just listening to what was going on. And there was just a lot of confusion. You didn't know what was going on, but the gravity of it all was, you know, really sinking in. I was just standing there. And as I'm standing there by the scanner, our, our Larry King, our editor comes up to me and he says, you're our rewrite man, which, which basically mean, you know, a story like this, it's so huge. You have, you know, the whole staff is, is involved and out, you know, we had probably half a dozen or more reporters out at the scene. We had others who were making phone calls and I was the one, when he said, you're the rewrite man is basically saying, you're going to write the story about this in tomorrow's paper. And you're going to pull together all the information that ever all of our reporters are getting, and you are going to write the main story. And I mean, I was just sitting there devastated to to know what was what had happened in our city. This was one of the worst things to ever happen in our city. And then to know I was going to be writing that story, and to know that this was a story that was the big national news story of the day. See, all the networks all were in Omaha. CNN, CNN was covering it live. And I know I'm the one who's going to be writing our, our story. And I, I did, but I think our reporters just did an incredible job. I mean, the police told us nothing. They didn't even tell it. They, they told us, I think that there were eight people dead, but they didn't tell us anything who they were. They didn't tell us what happened, how it happened, who the gunman was, anything. And our reporters just did this incredible job pulling this information together. And I and decided to take this information and just try to piece together the best I could what had happened there. And I just remember I bled over every word of that story because it was gut-wrenching. And to, to be writing about what had happened here, but there was also a lot of stress, of, you know, trying to make sure we got it right. Did we, did we get this right? You know, this person said this. Do we believe it? by far the most difficult story I ever did with the paper. But afterwards I said, we really need to dig into what happened here. And, and that's what kind of led to this multi-part narrative where I ended up talking to three dozen people who had been in the store that day. And I talked to all the cops and I talked to the first cops to arrive on the scene. I talked to the cops who discovered the body, uh, the bodies and, and the body of, shooter. I talked to the young woman who was in the security office and watching everything on video camera and trying to direct police on, on where to go. And and it, it it turned into this amazingly riveting narrative. But what was also cool about the story was in the end how uplifting it was. I mean, because this was a traumatic event for Omaha. And there was a lot of concern about whether do we even wanted to write the story. But as I got into it, I, I realized it's also this amazingly uplifting story about how Omaha rallied around these people and rallied around the store and, um, and just were committed to moving on from this, learning from this and moving on from this. So this narrative was going into pretty big detail like, you know, you're following in the footsteps of a killer, basically. But in the end, it, it, it ended being, you know, when by the time you read part whatever, the last part of the series, I mean, it wasn't a depressing, sad story. It was an uplifting story. And uh, um, of all the narratives I've done for the paper, I think that's, that's probably my favorite one. We've mentioned that you've been a journalist now at the World Herald for over four decades. and the journalism profession has changed a lot, even in the past 10 years. Talk a little bit about what changes you've had to make along the way on the way that you do stuff, if you've made any changes, and then where you see the profession kind of going from here. Yeah, the, the you know, it's not a, all a great story. In fact, a lot of it is a very sad story. I mean, I, I feel... I feel like I've, in my career, I've seen the, uh, I've lived from the golden ages of journalism to, you know, wherever we're headed now, which we're not really totally sure where we're going. I mean, I had delivered the World Herald when I was in middle school and uh, I lived in the Exarban neighborhood and I could count on one hand the number of people who did not take paperback. I mean, the newspaper back in the 1970s, 80s, 
even the nineties, I mean, it was just considered an essential thing. I mean, and everybody uh, got the paper, but we know what's, what's, what's happened. I mean, the, the internet came along and, and it was um, leading to great changes in the way people got news and consume news. And, and it had devastating effects on newspapers uh, for a couple of reasons. Well, a, you know, advertising, you know, the, what really determined the size of your newspapers, how many ads they sell and beyond what was happening on the internet, you know, the internet was also changing how people buy stuff. And so all the department stores, the Yonkers, the Brandeis, you know, that used to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars advertising in their local paper. Well, they aren't even around anymore. So you have newspapers that are losing this, this huge, uh, they're taking this big hit on advertising classified ads. I mean, think about 20 years ago, if you wanted a job or if you wanted to hire somebody for a job, you took out a classified ad. That was the, that was the way it was done. Or if you wanted to sell anything, you took out a classified ad. And if you had an apartment to rent, you took out a classified ad. You know, now, you know, if you look at the classified ads, I like to say, thank God for puppies, because I mean, <laughs> if there weren't for them, we wouldn't have classifieds anymore. So newspapers are losing this incredible revenue stream from advertising. And at the same time, circulation, newspapers had decided early on that, you know, this internet is just this side thing. So we'll just give the content for free. And that was the model that newspapers followed initially, all of them. And until they realized that once the internet got bigger than the print subscribers, that more people were getting their news by the internet, that, um, well, free is not much of a business model. And uh, so their they're, newspapers have been losing, you know, this subscription revenue from these very loyal older readers who are dying off and, and this advertising role. So it's an absolute double whammy that economically has hit newspapers because all those dollars paid the salaries of reporters like me. I mean, news, the news is not free. I mean, it costs money to pay reporters to cover the news, whether it's the person just covering what's going on at the city hall or, or a reporter like me who they're giving the luxury of spending two or three weeks really diving deeply into a, a topic. Well, that, that costs money. And Unfortunately, those resources uh, have been drying up and what we've seen is a tremendous reduction in the amount of people who are doing journalists, but that also means less journalism. And that's not good for anybody. I mean, that's not, that's not good for our Republic. The, the role that journalists play in informing the public and being the public watchdog, I mean, it's an absolutely critical role and there is absolutely no question it has been severely diminished. And that is bad news for everyone. Now, what the future is, there's going to be a need for what we do. And we're not sure really what the, the model is going to be. I mean, some people think it's nonprofit news. We've had some nonprofit websites spring up, and I think that that could be a good model, but it takes money. And so that means if you're doing a nonprofit model, that means you're going to have to have donors who are who will think this, what you guys do is important enough, and I sincerely believe that it is, that they are willing to support that. I mean, I think the printed paper probably is going to go away at some point. I mean, I remember 20 years ago, people were saying it would be gone in five years. Well, it's still here today. I mean, I guess I'll always just say that, you know, 10 years from now, there probably won't be a printed paper. But I would, people were saying that 10 and 20 years ago too. Who knows when that'll happen? But you have to think that at some point, so so much of the audience has migrated to online that the printed product will go away. And I will miss that because I, I love picking up a real newspaper every day and not searching around on the internet and or searching around on a website even and having the news packaged for me where, where people who are smart and have gone through what was going on in the day and packaged it for me in a readable, compact form where I can find everything. I mean, I, I think that that's an incredibly important thing. So I think the future probably, I don't think the nonprofit, I don't think the for-profit news operations are going away and certainly not completely. I think there could be a model of a co combination of for-profit and, and nonprofit news. 
I mean, the the ironic thing is because with the internet, we're probably more people reading us than ever before, but it's just that the resources aren't there to support that, you know, and I used to stress out about, about the future of, well, I still stress in the big picture about the future of journalism, because like I said, I agree, I really feel what we do is super important. I don't stress about my own future in the business. I mean, it's just like, I feel like whether my work is being printed in a newspaper, put online or, or someday beamed directly into people's head. I mean, there's a, there's a need for what the type of thing that we do. And I know that it's something that, that really needs to be sustained. On a happier note, if you can share, what are some upcoming projects that you're working on that you're excited about? Um, yeah, I always have way more ideas and, and things than I have stories uh, are the time to write these stories. Uh, right now I'm kind of in the middle of a title nine series. That's been kind of really fun. So whatever I'm working on is, is probably always my favorite story, but because again, I just love what I do. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a title nine story right now. That's kind of telling a really untold story of how high school sports and how we treat high school sports really became transformed in Nebraska during the 1990s. And it's a story that had some really interesting players, uh, a guy who was just really committed to seeing girls softball and uh, uh, a woman who was a former Creighton softball student manager who was a fresh attorney who got very interested in this topic and was just this bulldog willing to sue anybody to create change. And then this farm wife from Minden, Nebraska, who who saw girls were blatantly discriminated against in the way sports were done and everyone had just accepted it, but she noticed it and was like, this is not right. So the title nine series has, has um, been fun. And uh, I'll be taking a deeper look into how our own colleges and universities are, are complying with title nine and best I can see or not. <laughs> Stay tuned for that. <laughs> Finally, we always like to end with my favorite question. What are some of your favorite central memories? I believe you have two to share. Yeah. Yeah. So many great memories. I mean, the, the again, I just love the, the people I went to school with. And, but some of the, my, I made probably my best friends at Central in sports. And I remember running for the cross country team and, David James was this incredible mentor. In my senior year, we we actually had a lot of success. Um, we made it to the state meet, which Central in the past, like in the set in the seventies, I think had even won a state title or two. But it had been a while since Central had even qualified for state. And my senior year, we kind of had a team, included some new people. I was fairly new to running. I'd only started running my junior year, so I was now a senior and had a year under my belt and. We actually came out of nowhere and and really surprised people. And what I really remember was the district meet that year because we had run in the metro meet and we'd only finished sixth. And then going into districts the next week of those top six teams, five of them were in our district and only two got to go to state. So to even get to Somebody's go to, getting left we, out. Yeah. And it was probably going to be us because we were going to essentially, if you do the the math there, we were going to have to beat three teams that had just the week before beat us in the Metro meet to make it the state. But I'll be damned if we just didn't come out and all run the Mr. James. I don't know. He got us ready to run somehow. We all just ran out of our heads and we just barely edged out West side to finish second and, and get to go to state and then go, getting to go to Kearney and run with my friends and teammates you know, I don't remember where we finished. We may have finished sixth or seventh in the state that year, but it was just a super thrill to be there. I remember getting to ride ride a bus to Kearney and stay at a hotel. We weren't very sophisticated that back then. Mr. James took us to a steakhouse for. Oh wow! <laughs> we didn't load up on spaghetti. We did, <laughs> apparently the whole carbo loading thing had not come along yet. But but I just remember what a great experience that was. My. Favorite non-central moment I like to say is when I didn't meet my wife at Central. <laughs> my wife and I actually both were went to Central and we were in the same graduating class in 1981, but we somehow didn't meet each other in Central. And 
even when I look back on it, it's kind of hard to imagine how that happened because we had mutual friends. I mean, there were friends of hers in middle school that became friends of mine in high school and vice versa. And, and we had some of the same classes. We were both in honors English, but when we looked at it later on, it was like, well, oh, you had it in fourth period. I had it sixth period, you know, and we were always in the opposite section and of an AP or an honors class that we both took. And we didn't happen to meet until 11 years after Central. And that was kind of through another Central connection. My One of my good friends from Central ended up moving into an apartment right next to her. And, and so I did meet her out in the hall one day and introduced myself. And as soon as I heard her name, it's like, you went to Central, didn't you? I mean, the name was familiar, but we we are we we went to some of the same parties, but we're absolutely convinced we never ever met during the time we were there. I, and I would say it's probably good things because because she was probably would have thought I was such a geeky little nerd. She probably wouldn't have given me the time of day anyway. All the better. But we both love Central, and I and I would repeat what what you said in the introduction. One of my proudest. Central moments had nothing to do with my time at Central. I was seeing my own daughters get to go through Central and getting to experience Central uh, the second time through them. Because, you know, we all, all of us Central grads know Central is just this incredibly great, diverse, and successful school. And I can tell you that having been through this recently with my own daughters, that Central is still a great school. In fact, it's, it's probably in a lot of ways a better school than it was when we were there. Well, Henry, thank you for coming on the show today, taking the time to stop by. We appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's been fun, Josh. Thanks. Once again, I want to extend a big thank you to our guest today, 1981 alumnus Henry Cortez. To our listeners, we hope you enjoyed episode nine of Eagle Tales. We would love to hear what you thought of this episode by emailing us at connect at chsfomaha.org or reaching out to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for the Central High School Foundation. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you can be notified of new episodes as they are released. A complete library of previous episodes can also be found on our website, chsfomaha.org. And remember, near or far, you are always part of the Central High School family. Go Eagles! Go Eagles!